0: Please, if you would, take your copy of God's Word and open we open with me to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 16. Hearing and reading and hearing God's Word is an act of corporate worship as well. Let's do it together. Matthew chapter 16. Two weeks ago we finished our book of Daniel, excuse me, our study of the book of Daniel. Whew! Big sigh of relief, but obviously of joy and gratitude as well. But we finished our book, uh, our study of the book of Daniel, and uh, while I'm preparing for uh, our next sermon series, uh, we're going to take a few weeks to kind of go back to square one on a few things. I want to take a step back and be reminded of some of our core convictions here. Some of the core convictions and doctrines and understandings uh, upon which this church was first planted seven years ago. <clears throat> and in this sense, I want to focus on the church. I want to focus on today specifically how the church is built and how the church is nourished. A lot of this is not, may not be new to most of you, but it's important to remember. Some Important to remind ourselves of these things, to be reminded of them, who we are as a congregation and what, of course, our philosophy, our understanding, our doctrine of the church is both today and moving forward. So Matthew chapter 16, I'm going to begin reading in verse 13. I'm not going to do a full exposition of this passage today in its context. But I do hope to draw out a few implications regarding church life. Matthew 16, verse 13, brethren, this is God's word. And when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside he began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Then Jesus told his disciples, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his li- uh, For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? And what shall a man give in return for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come with his angels in the glory of his Father, and then he will repay each person according to what he has done. Truly I say to you, there are are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Amen. This is God's Word. Let's pray again. Please bow with me. Father, again, we are reminded that you have the words of eternal life, you alone. But we do pray and we ask that you would make these words effectual to our hearts through the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Oh, Father, how often are we, how often are we like Peter here, assuming that we know what is best, that we know Your purposes and Your plan. Lord, just as You had patience with Peter, we pray that You would have patience with us. Just as You taught Peter, we pray that You would teach us. Teach us now. Answer our prayer. Hear us as we ask. In Christ's name, amen. One well, of the marks of a Christian is that the more that we grow and mature in our sanctification, the more we learn to live less and less in the present moment and more and more in light of the grand scheme of God's purposes and plan and promises. Part of living and growing as a Christian is learning to live not by faith, but by sight. Excuse me. By, <laughs> I totally messed that up. Learning as a Christian is learning more and more to live not by sight, which is our natural inclination, and yet to live by faith. The faith of God's grand plan and scheme of redemption. Think, for example, of creation, fall, and redemption, and how often those things, these three things are mentioned. Think of how often these things are mentioned in light of a way of summarizing the message of Scripture. We're told again and again in Scripture of The story of creation, in the sense, it's important because we we need to know and remember that we are God's creatures and that creation itself is good, that we might rightly order our lives. Think of how often we're told and reminded of the reality of fall, the reality of sin, and how we are to live in light of how everything that is wrong with the world can be traced back to sin. Even more so, think of how often we're called to remember and live in light of redemption. Think of the New Testament. Remember that you were once slaves to sin. Remember who you once were before the grace of God. As Israel is told to remember the Exodus, we are called to remember His body and blood in the Lord's Supper and so on. Think of as well as how often we're told to remember and live in light of the future consummation. The last day. Knowing and living in light of creation, fall, and redemption helps us escape the tyranny of the present. It helps us live and walk by faith and not by sight. And I bring this up because if this is true in the Christian life, it's also true in relation to the church as well. In relation to the church. Church life. Our evaluation of the church, our live, our living in the church. Just like life, church life is full of ups and downs. Every church goes through seasons of plenty and seasons of famine. Sometimes it can seem as though church is heaven on earth. We never want to leave. At other times, we're tempted to question everything. Whew. Do I really believe this? thought I did. Is this really true? Maybe I can find something better at the church down the road. Maybe I need to run away and find greener pastures. And we look at how the church is by schisms rent asunder and by heresies distressed. And and we end up living in the moment and we forget and we neglect the greater and grander truths about the church. Well, here in our passage today, we come back to a core truth. Just like we might say, hey, ground zero for the Christian life is going back to creation, fall, redemption. Matthew chapter 16 is one of those core passages. One of those core passages that bring us back to a foundational truth that must always guide and direct our understanding and life in the church. Because here we're reminded that Jesus Christ is the head of the church. That Jesus Christ is the builder of His church. Now you may say, well, that's pretty obvious, but trust me when I say that it's not as easy to live uh, uh, in light of this as you might think. The church is not ours, it's His. The church is growth, the church is health, the church is purity, the church is flourishing, the church is endurance and perseverance is ultimately His greatest concern, even more than ours, and is ultimately His task that He's promised to accomplish and fulfill, not ours. Because Jesus Christ is the one who founded the church. Jesus Christ is the one who purchased the church with His own blood. Jesus Christ is the one who rules and reigns over His church as the chief shepherd, And Jesus Christ is the one who has promised to fully and finally perfect her and glorify her and consummate her in eternity. The church is not ours. It's His. And so today, I want us to remember some of these basics, some of these core truths, so that we might rightly order our steps in the church, that we might rightly be comforted and assured by the promises of God that we might not live instinctively in the moment. Three things from our passage today. I want us to point out three things. Again, I'm just going to emphasize, I'm not going to do a full exposition, I just want to pull out a few principles. I want to ask the question, how does Christ build and nourish His church? How does He do this? With unlikely methods, unlikely materials, and unlike, in an unlikely manner. Methods, material, and manner. First, let's consider. How does Christ build His church? Well, He uses unlikely methods. Maybe maybe think of it this way. Unlikely church growth methods, right? How does He build His church? Unlikely methods. I said before, this passage is central in the book of Matthew. It's central in the New Testament. It's central in the Gospels because it's in... um, It's only one of two places in all the Gospels where Jesus Christ specifically uses the word church. Now, of course, he talks about the church without using the term um, quite frequently, but it's central because he actually uses the word here. It's also central, though, because this passage really reveals why it is that Jesus came to earth. It's kind of that section of Matthew that kind of stands out. It's like a a mountain, a paramount in the book itself, which really highlight and put on display all of the purposes for which Matthew is describing all the reason why Jesus came and lived and died and rose. Christ came in order to build his church. That's the ultimate goal of his entire ministry. We're told in the first part of Matthew that Christ came to save His people from their sins. Later, we're told that Christ came to build the consummate Kingdom of God. Well, here, that focus narrows. And it focuses specifically on a particular manifestation of those things that are present in the church. Forgiveness of sins and the Kingdom of God. The church is the context. It's the arena. It's the place, it's the institution through which forgiveness of sins is being granted and the kingdom of God is being built and seen. Another way of putting it, the church contains the seeds by which Christ is recreating all things. But of course, our question at hand is, how does he do this? How does God grant forgiveness of sins? How does God build His kingdom? How does God remake the world? Well, we begin to see this by noting the question Jesus poses to the disciples here in verse 13. There's been a flurry of activity in Matthew. Jesus has walked on water. He's fed 5,000. He's healed the sick. He's performed all these signs and wonders. And so He stops here. And Jesus turns to ask the disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? People have seen a lot. Who am I? And so they answer in verse 14. Well, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. Others, Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. It's interesting here. that you know, It's clear that the people have a very high view of who he is. This, this is speaking very highly of Jesus. Say that he's a prophet. That he's Elijah. In John the Baptist. All the people love John the Baptist. But you know, it's, that's not enough, right? You know, it's not enough to think or speak highly of Jesus. Just think about it in our day. I mean, it's hard to find anyone. Anyone outside of, of a militant atheist, really, who doesn't think highly of Jesus. Everybody thinks highly of Jesus. Even Gandhi spoke of Jesus, how much he loved Jesus, just didn't like his people. Everyone in in our day and age loves to to kind of uh, claim Jesus is on their side, no matter what they're arguing for. But brethren, thinking highly of Jesus means nothing. And that's a danger in the church. Because you wouldn't be here today if you didn't think highly of Jesus. But if that's all that it is, if you just think highly of Jesus, that means nothing. That's not enough. We know that because of how Jesus presses this further. What about you, my disciples? What about you? Am I a rabbi? Just another rabbi? Am I just another prophet? Am I just another man of God? Brother, that's not really our focus today to to kind of narrow in on this, but i got to mention it. That's the implicit question that Christ is posing to you this morning as well. Who do you say that Jesus is? Because how you answer that is going to reverberate for all eternity. And if you think he's just a good man with good teachings, or a prophet, or a nice guy, brethren, that's not enough. Peter gives us the answer, the right answer to this question. Who is this man Verse 16, you are the Christ. You are the anointed one of the Old Testament. You are the Messiah, the promised one. And you are the Son of the living God. You are the Lord and ruler of God's kingdom. There is a relationship between you and the Father that is unique. That is unlike any other man or being in the entire universe. You are the son of the living God. Peter answers right. But we need to know that Jesus doesn't pose this question simply to get a profession of faith out of his disciples. We need to, we need to make sure that we note that. He poses this question because he wants to teach them about the church. Verse 18 makes that clear. uh, Jesus instigates this conversation that leads to Peter's confession because he wants to teach them and us about the purposes of God, about the purposes of his kingdom, about how he came to build his church on this rock. I will build my church. We're going to get into this more in a moment, but here we see that Jesus builds the church based upon the profession of faith in Him. Just like Peter's here. That's how Jesus builds His church. Centered around this profession of faith. You are the Christ. You are the Son of God. But of course, as soon as we recognize that, we have to see Jesus also wants to teach us that this profession of faith... Does it come from within? Peter, how do you know this? Verse 17. Flesh and blood did not reveal this to you. In other words, you didn't come up with this on your own. This wasn't your own power. This wasn't your own intellect. This wasn't your own will. It wasn't your own decision. But my Father who is in heaven revealed this to you. Peter was brought by the Father to see and believe who Jesus really is. Peter was chosen for salvation from the foundation of the world. And in due time, the Holy Spirit worked to produce faith in his heart and in his life. And brethren, this gets at the unlikely method by which Christ builds his church. Christ is making it clear. I do not build my church in the same way that I built the nation of Israel through family lineage, natural birth, having children. Jesus is making it clear that he does not build his church through ethnic heritage as if. The Jews are automatically the building of the church or any privileged nation or culture or people. Jesus is making it clear He doesn't build His church based upon who is mighty, who is righteous, who is wise, who is respectable, who is rich, who has influence, who can make the right call and evaluate things according to how they really are. You are the Christ based upon all of My intellect and will. Brother, we should know as well, you don't need really to be told this. Um, uh, Otherwise, you probably wouldn't be here today. But Jesus does not build his church based upon slick marketing strategies or clever programs and outreach or invigorating worship music. World class public speakers. Christ builds His church, as we see from this passage, through the Spirit of God, sovereignly working in the heart of sinners so that they are brought to life and confess that Christ is Lord. Christ builds His church by bringing people to faith through the work of the Holy Spirit. And how do people come to faith? How do people believe? Well, to believe, they have to first hear. And to hear, somebody has to preach. And to preach, somebody has to be sent and commissioned with the authority of God to do so. These are the unlikely and ordinary means of how Christ builds His church. Well, brethren, if you are here today and you are part of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to know it is because what happened to Peter has happened to you. You are reading your own biography right here with Peter. And as in a minute we'll see, that includes his his sins and failures as well. But somebody sent a preacher in God's providence. Somebody sent a witness to you. Somebody to declare God's Word to you. To get God's Word in your hands. And the Word of Christ came to you just like it resounded in Peter's ears. And through the word of Christ, the Spirit of God revealed to you that Christ is not just another teacher or prophet or man of God, but that He's the Son of God, and thus you confessed His name and were sealed for that day of redemption in the Holy Spirit. That's what's so beautiful about this passage in light of everything else. We can look at this and we can hear Christ speaking to us. Jesus says to you, do you confess that He is the Christ? Then you are blessed. You are blessed. You have been taught by the Father. You have been claimed by Him as His very own. What an assurance of pardon right here. (laughs) What an assurance of pardon to hear our Lord say, child, you are blessed. Blessed are you and to name you by name. So the unlikely method by which Christ builds His church is through the message of the Gospel producing genuine faith in those who hear. And that genuine faith is uh, per the working of the Holy Spirit and it is this manner and this method because this is what ensures that God Himself receives the ultimate glory in the building of His church. If it was in our ability to just bring people in the church and baptize them as we will, if it was just our ability to argue people into the kingdom, to manipulate their emotions, if we were just skilled enough in advertising and marketing, if we just worked hard and long enough to produce conversions, who who would receive the glory? But when there is no earthly answer according to the wisdom of this world for the building of the church except the Word was faithfully preached, the Word did it all, that's when God Himself is most glorified. Let us be careful to guard against responding in the moment, living instinctively in the moment, When we don't see the health, when we don't see the growth that we want in the church or expect in the short term, and let's beware of forgetting that it is the Word and it's the faithful ministry of the Word and the working of the Holy Spirit blessing the Word that is ground zero for what everything Christ is doing in His church and building His church. We've got to move quickly. Secondly, there's a second answer here. How does Christ build His church? Also with unlikely materials. Unlikely materials. Let's look more closely at verse 18 and 19. I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be shall be loosed in heaven. You probably know that this passage is a, a point of great controversy in the history of the church. There's been a lot of ink and blood, literally blood spilt over this question. What, what kind of role is Jesus assigning to Peter here? Is Peter himself exclusively that rock? In Roman Catholicism, Peter was the first pope. Jesus is giving ultimate ultimate, um, absolute authority to Peter, to one man, and, and he is to pass this down as, uh, to his successors, that's what the Roman Catholic Church argues, is Jesus assigning Peter an office like a succession of bishops, where only they can lay hands and pass that down. What, what is this role that Peter is being given here? Um, of course, we don't have time to go into all that today. Um, I'm not going to do, again, full exposition of this passage, but, but I want to make a few things clear here. that should be obvious from, from the surface of things. First, in, in the greatest sense, Jesus is referring to himself as the rock. Peter had just said, you are the Messiah, to which Jesus responds, yes, and upon this rock. Upon the Messiah. Upon the Son of God. Upon me as the church, excuse me, chief cornerstone, I will build my church. It's ultimately what is true here. Christ is the rock upon which the church is built. However, Jesus is intentionally making um, a play on words as well. And I do believe Peter has some sort of special role here. Peter is going to be a special agent by which Christ builds his church. We know that Peter was... In the inner circle of the three disciples. And he saw things that others didn't like the transfiguration. We know that Peter was the first one who stood up and preached at Pentecost. And that led to thousands being saved in the founding of the New Testament church right then and there. But we also know in the book of Acts that Peter, it's through Peter that the gospel broke through the Gentiles. Spread throughout all the world. Peter does play a special role. However, I would also say that that's a role that's not just exclusive to him. We read in the book of Ephesians that the apostles are the foundation of the church. We know that it's through their ministries, through their writings, which continue to speak in our day. The word, through their hand, that continues to speak and build the church. I'd also argue in an even greater sense, Jesus is also saying that we too are um, agents by which Christ builds his church. We who profess faith in Christ. And that's what I'm getting at here when I talk about Jesus uses unlikely materials. Because all we've got to do is think about Peter here. You know, Peter, the one who continually had a foot in his mouth. Peter, the one who a few verses later, Jesus would turn around and say, get behind me, Satan? Satan? As great of a blessing it is to hear, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Excuse me. As great of a blessing it is to hear, blessed are you, Simon Barjona. Think about just how, how crushing it would be to hear the Lord call you Satan. Peter's the one who denied Jesus three times. Peter is the one, after Pentecost, the only apostle to be rebuked in the New Testament as we read in the book of Galatians. Jesus, you're going to build your church upon this guy? Why not John? The one that Jesus loved. There's nothing bad ever said about John, except that part about wanting to sit right next to him in his kingdom. Why not James? He's your half brother, he's lion hearted. Why not build the church on him? Why not use him for this great task? Peter seems to be the most unlikely one of all to be chosen for this task. But brethren, this gives us a picture. It gives us a glimpse of how the Lord delights to work. He doesn't delight in using the righteous and the especially gifted and the extraordinarily holy. Christ doesn't delight in building and expanding His church using people who have things all together. But as we read in 1 Corinthians, the Lord delights in using weak and fallible and immature and sometimes often sinful vessels, vessels of mercy, to build His church. Paul says we hold this treasure in clay pots. Right? In chamber pots. Pots that are easily broken, easily crushed, that are ultimately worthless, that are ultimately filthy in some respect. They're used for base purposes. We're fragile. We could be crushed at any moment. We have no strength in and of ourselves. We despair even of life itself, Paul says. But these are the instruments that the Lord uses to build His church. And again, He does this. Why? To reserve all the glory for Himself. When the wise and the mighty and the beautiful and the strong and the gifted and the eloquent are front and center in the building of the church. The world is tempted to believe they did that. Rather than God. God will not give His glory to another. God delights to use what is weak and worthless and foolish in the eyes of the world to shame the wise and to thus glorify His name. But to get down to brass tacks here in verse 19, Jesus promises then to give the keys of the kingdom to Peter, and the keys of the kingdom um, are depicted here as binding and loosing, loosening, uh, or another way, uh, opening and shutting the doors of the church. We need to ask here: Who who is it that holds the keys to these kingdom to this kingdom? Well, again, Peter does in some sense. The rest of the apostles do as well, in some sense, through their writings. But brethren, I believe as we flesh this out in the New Testament, we see that you hold the keys of the kingdom as well. Yes, church officers, elders, pastors specifically, they hold a primary role. They're called to lead and to take initiative and to exercise authority in the opening of the, the door, front door of the church and the closing of the church to the wicked. But, but you too are given this task in some sense. You too are called to carry the gospel to your neighbor, to the world, to your respective places and callings. That's a duty that God has commissioned you to. To evangelize, to witness. You too, as part of a member of this body, are to be careful who you let in the front door of this church. That's why we baptize on the basis of a congregational vote. And we all consent to a baptize. It's not just my decision. You too, as we see in the book of 1 Corinthians most specifically, you are called to cast out the unrepentant. Paul charges the church, you put up with this sin. A man had his father's wife. You should have put him out. He doesn't charge just the elders with that. He doesn't charge Peter with that. He says the church, for the purity of the body, you hold a responsibility here. So so this is how all the saints, in some sense, we have different roles, we have different levels of authority, we have different places in this, but all the saints, in some sense, are given the keys of the kingdom. The key is it's center on a credible profession of faith in Christ. Welcoming him in the front door. And a profession that is not undermined by false doctrine or sinful living. The back door of the church and church discipline. Putting up with sin in our church is not just the pastor's fault. It's your fault. All of our faults. The ministry of the church... In some respect, the formal ministry is given to, to, to pastor elders. But there are uh, one another areas of service and love and discipleship. is your responsibility as well. Keys of the kingdom are given to the church. And these are the unlikely materials that God uh, in Christ uses to build His church. Brethren, this is what I mean when I say let's look at our doctrine of the church through the lens not of just what's going on in the moment, but in view of God's greater and grander plan. And the responsibilities that He's given all of us. It's so easy to think, well, there's so much opposition, nobody's going to listen to the Gospel. We've got to do something more. It's so easy to get caught up in our failures and caught up in our weaknesses and caught up in our inadequacies and our deficiencies. It's, how easy, it's so easy to think, well, we've got to just let everybody in or the church won't, won't grow or, or no, we can never excommunicate someone. We can't do that. That would damage our reputation in the community. No one's going to want to come in here. How easy it is to, to show Partiality. Oh, these people have lots of money. We need to show them favor because they got great resources, and we can do a lot for the kingdom, of course, with their offerings. These people have clout in the community., Ooh, We need to cater to their needs. We need that type of reputation. Or these people are my friends? I love this, the, the, this person or this family would never want to jeopardize that relationship by challenging their sin or saying something uncomfortable about their sin. How easy is it to just get caught up in these things and and rather than keeping our eyes on Christ, rather than than understanding um, the nature of the church and and the life of the church, and, and and we live in the moment instead of pursuing first and foremost what He wants for the church, embracing the unlikely materials that He loves and is pleased to use, weak, infallible vessels. To build and nourish, grow the church. Unlikely methods, unlikely materials. Third and finally, brethren, let's consider how Christ builds his church using, or I should say, in an unlikely manner. An unlikely manner. In an unlikely manner. Again, uh, look with me now at verses Um, Let's start with verse 20 and read through 25. Then Jesus strictly charged his disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, far be it from you, Lord, It shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, "Get behind me, Satan! You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man." And Jesus told his disciples, "If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would lose his life, save his life, would lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it." Isn't it odd that Jesus talks about building his church? Upon this profession of faith in Christ. And then he turns around and tells his disciples, hey, don't mention this to anybody. God's ways are higher than our ways. And the truth is, uh, the disciples don't yet fully understand what Jesus was telling them, as the following verse makes it clear. You see, at the end of the day, how is it ultimately that Christ? will build His church. What's clear from verse 21 and following is that Christ builds His church by suffering and dying. Christ came to earth to die and to secure the salvation of His people. And that if Christ does not die, there would be no church. There would be no forgiveness of sins. There would be no kingdom of God. So the manner in which Christ builds his church is through suffering and death. That's the unlikely manner. Of course, it's too unlikely to Peter. And it's hard for us to swallow at times as well. Wait, well, you're, you're building your church and you're going to tell me, it, well, how are you going to build your church if you're dead? Peter essentially says, Who's going to listen to this message if our leader is weak and passive in the face of a hostile and pagan government and culture? How are you ever going to slay the enemies of God if they put you to death instead? This is why Jesus tells him to be silent about who he is. This is why right after saying, Peter, you're the rock um, through which I'm going to build my church, he then turns around and says, Get behind me, Satan. Satan. You're living in the moment. You have your mind set on the things of man. Infinite, finite, present, and sinful perspective of man. Peter evaluating things from his present circumstances and experience rather than God's Word. And it's the same as true. Our world does not understand suffering. Our world does not understand humility or sacrifice or mercy or love. The world doesn't understand the message of the cross. The message of the cross is foolishness. It's stupid. It's foolish. It's, it's embarrassing. It's shameful. It's simple. It's boring to the world. And yet that is the message, the cross, and the method, the preaching of the cross, which is also foolish. Why would you sit and stand and listen to one man stand up and speak? This is the message and the method by which God is pleased to save those who believe. And so Jesus goes on to make this clear. That's why He says then in verse 24, you need to understand, if you want to follow Me, you've got to die. You've got to die because the shame and the humility and the suffering that I am about to undergo, that's what I'm calling you to as well. even though it's contrary to everything that you feel there's natural to you, it's contrary to living in the moment and reacting to the here and now, the Gospel is a call to die. And think about how so often in life we do, we do anything we can to escape suffering. It's kind of natural to us how often in life we want peace and comfort and pleasure right now. I want sexual gratification right now. I need to win this argument right now. I need to get this off my chest right now. I I need to have this person. I need to have this job. I need to have this lifestyle. I need to have this kind of church right now. To call the Gospel is take up your cross Walk in my steps, lose your life. Live in light of eternity. Order your steps after uh, the, the path of suffering and shame that, that is inherent in the cross. The call of the gospel is a call to your death. A call to begin a sacred dying to self. Even as he promises to give us the grace that we need in the moment. Brother, don't you see there's tremendous freedom, though, in the self denial and setting aside what you want in the moment to live in light of God's word? There's tremendous glory that awaits us. Uh, in the life to come, when we walk just as He walked, when we share in His sufferings, when we are are joyfully content for our wants and our desires and our preferences to fade into the background that He may increase and we may decrease. The unlikely manner in which the church is built is through her shame in the eyes of the world, through her suffering and through her death. In some sense. Well, brethren, as we kind of bring this all together. We might feel that the bare message of the gospel is inadequate to build the church. Christ uses unlikely methods through his Holy Spirit. We may feel that we ourselves are entirely inadequate to be an instrument of his building the church. Christ delights in using broken, unlikely vessels of mercy and weakness for His glory. And you might feel that humility and suffering and a life of self-denial are antithetical to the building of the church. But Christ promises, just as He is our suffering Savior, that as we lose our life for His sake, we will find it. And the manner in which Christ builds His church is suffering the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church was the cry in times of old. This is the new community that Christ is building. This is the people of God that should radically re- reorientate our entire lives in perspective. The question we're faced with is when we get discouraged in the short run, run will we try to fix things ourselves? Will we just? Get discouraged and walk away when things don't go according to plan? Or will we remember who is the head, of the head of the church? What has He promised to do? How has He promised to build it? These are the foundational reasons for why we are here at CRBC. It's why we exist. And brethren, what a privilege it is to hear that... It's a promise of blessing upon profession of faith and the privilege to know and rest in His Word, the Gospel, as the means by which the church is built and nourished. A privilege it is to walk in the steps of our Savior, even if that means difficulty and suffering and shame. What a beautiful thing it is to know that Christ came down from heaven to lose His life for our sake. And that when we see that and we know that, how shall we not freely and joyfully give Him our lives in return and live that life of sacred dying to self? Not to earn anything, not to merit anything, not to accomplish anything. We already have it all in Him. But to do so in thankful gratitude as we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Brethren, I call you this morning to remember Christ as the head of the church and fix our eyes upon him and the ups and downs and the twists and turns and the joys and sorrows that characterize this life and this church life, even here at C R B C and everything in between. Let us fix our eyes upon Christ. Let's pray.